Well, if I ever have the chance to meet Chris Tomlin, I will ask him if uh, when they wrote this song, they were reading Numbers chapter 9. Before we uh, open our Bibles today, I just want to uh, share some thoughts about peacocks, ducks, turkeys, and chickens. They're weird, and they want stuff all the time. And they follow my mom around like the Pied Piper because they know that she has treats and gives them food. In the same way that these birds follow my mom around, it's just funny to watch. She comes out the door and they just like fall in line. They're going to chase after her. In the same way, uh, her dog Bailey uh, kind of follows my daughter Emma. As soon as Emma shows up, Bailey leaves whatever she's doing. doesn't matter who's petting her or whatever she's doing. She sees Emma and she goes running toward the car. She's on a tie-out, so it ends in her going, ah! But she goes running toward Emma because she knows that Emma is the one who takes her out to play. As soon as she sees her, she knows this. When I'm out in the pasture, the cattle will follow my voice. When I call them, they come. They're, they could be in the farthest pasture away. But when I holler for them, they know that if I'm calling them, I'm probably taking them to a new pasture or, or giving them some, uh, some hay or some, some uh, fresh water. They're, they're excited about it, so they're going to come. Even when they, uh, on those sad occasions, escape the pasture and, uh, and they're out loose, when I call them, they will generally come and, and follow me. They're used to that. You may have noticed with children that the more nervous a young child is, the more closely they follow their mom or dad. They feel safe there. There's something in us that causes us to follow because we want something. Maybe it's food, maybe it's pleasure, affection. Maybe it's protection, that, that feeling of safety. But we only follow if we trust the one we're following, that they're on our side, that they provide for us what we want, what it is that we're seeking after. Only if we trust them. Those same animals, the same, same ones that follow so willingly, will scatter and flee if they perceive a threat. <clears throat> Excuse me. They'll wander if they're distracted. Those birds that follow my mom like the Pied Piper, if someone else is out there, might run away from them, thinking, oh, this is a threat rather than a food source, right? The cattle might hear someone else's voice and get agitated, thinking that this is not taking me to a better place. This is danger. Those animals can be distracted Sometimes when the cattle are where they shouldn't be, I call and they say, hmm, nah, I think it's better here. We get distracted, don't we? We follow in the same way. We have to decide, just as they do, whether to follow willingly. Today, as we get into the second half of Numbers 9, our core reality will be this. God is faithful to lead His people but we must choose to follow Him. God is faithful to lead His people, but we must choose to follow Him. Before we turn there, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank You. 
We thank you for the knowledge that you are faithful to your covenant, that you watch over your covenant people. Father, we thank you that we can trust you and that you have made yourself known to us. Help us to recognize the voice of our good shepherd. Help us to willingly follow, undistracted by other voices or momentary pleasures, undeterred by whether anyone else comes along with us, unhindered by our own understanding, wondering if what you're doing is really the best thing for us. Help us to trust your faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Numbers chapter 9. If you're not already there, we're continuing in our In the Wilderness series. And uh, last time we were together in Numbers 9, uh, we looked at this celebration of the Passover. We talked about that two weeks ago, looking at what, what the children of Israel did in the Passover and celebrating as God commanded them to do, why they did it, that this is what would support their faith as they looked back to what God had done in the past, <clears throat> in the past, that would strengthen their faith in their ability to trust in what God would do in the future. As they're dealing right now in the moment, they wouldn't know how to handle it if they didn't look back and say, you know what, God is faithful. God has always been faithful, amen? When we look at what he has done, he does not fail. How do we know? He has never failed. And the better we know him, the better we understand, as Chuck read for us earlier, and as I read from Isaiah 40 earlier, we understand that as we look at his deeds, as we look at how he has handled his people throughout the history of the relationship that he's had, as we get to know that he is bigger, he is beyond. He's not like us. Who in the world could compare themselves with God? Who could think on that level or begin to question Him? We see in His very nature that it is impossible for anything to thwart God's plans. Therefore, when God says you are His covenant people, you belong to Him, you can trust that everything He does is not only in your best interest, but it is unstoppable. Therefore, when God says go, going makes sense. When God says this is the promised land I'm bringing you into, and I'm telling you it's better than you ever imagined. When God says this and he brings you there, you don't care about the giants that are standing between you and that inheritance because they don't compare to God. We'll get to that story later on. It doesn't go as well as we see today. Today, we see the foundation of what should be. This is a picture of what is supposed to happen throughout the rest of the book, but does not. It's supposed to happen throughout the rest of Israel's history, but it does not. It's supposed to happen in your life and mine. Sad to say it does not. Let's read. Numbers 
chapter 9, starting with verse 15. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law, was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. This is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at His command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp. And then at His command, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening till morning. And when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command they encamped, and at the Lord's command they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with His command through Moses. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. God is faithful to lead His people, but we must choose to follow Him. Notice, this is another repetitive section. It's a short section. It's not repetitive to the same extent as when we saw the, uh, the donations or the gifts of the, uh, of the tribes brought to the tabernacle, and we saw that over and over again for the second longest passage, or second longest chapter in the Bible. But here we see this repeated thing. As the cloud was there, they settled. As the cloud lifted, they set out. When the Lord commanded, they left. When the Lord commanded, they stayed. Over and over again. What does it tell you when you see something repeated like that? Same thing it meant when your mama told you that you're supposed to do something and she said it again and again and again, right? Same thing when you're in, in the classroom and the teacher continually gives you the same point over and over again. Pay attention. I'm writing it on the board. You need to copy this down. Why? There will be a test. The Israelites are going to have a test. And they need to study. They need to know and God continues, this is before, by the way, this is before they get to the point where God has them wander for 40 years in the wilderness. This is just the normal travel before they get to the promised land. And in this normal travel, God varies how long the cloud stays. Whether that cloud appears as a cloud or appears as a fire, what it really is is the Shekinah glory of God, the manifest, visible presence of God and the best term that we have in our language to describe it, or in the Hebrew language to describe it, is that of a cloud or a pillar of fire. Notice it says it looked like fire. Not that it was or wasn't. That's not the point. It's not a matter of, of chemical reaction and burning. It's not a matter of, of condensed water vapor in a cloud. 
It's the glory of God. It's his presence. Therefore, when God said stay, they stay. When God said move, they move. That's how following God works. Let's, uh, let's begin to move through this. There are three main things that we want to see here today. First, see this. God leads his people because he is faithful. God leads his people because he is faithful. All right? So within each of these points, there are going to be two sub-points we're going to see. The first is going to give us a picture of what happens in the text. The second will be a principle that we can see under the new covenant because of Jesus. All right, so God leads his people because he is faithful. Notice first, the Lord was with his people to guide them without fail. The Lord was with his people to guide them without fail. He was always there when god came in this happens after the tabernacle set up we've seen the dedication we've seen the sacrifices they've celebrated the passover in the first part of this chapter as god commanded them to do after he had organized the entire the entire nation so that god's people ordered every aspect of their life with him at the center they're organized around the tabernacle and God, who had met with Moses on the mountain and had met with him in the tent of meeting outside the camp, now dwells in the midst of his people as he had promised. It's not like God is out there saying, hey, go do this. It was God in the midst of them, taking them there. It's an interesting thing when we consider the God of the Bible. It's not like the deist God of the Enlightenment when we think of our founding fathers, we spent a lot of time in recent days looking at the founding of this nation. Much of their understanding of God flowed out of the Enlightenment and was therefore distorted by human understanding. Some of it actually was, was a help that broke free from some of the shackles of previous human understanding. But their understanding of God, particularly in uh, prominent deists, who would look at God as this cosmic watchmaker. He designed everything in this orderly way, but he was very hands-off about it. He wound up the watch, so to speak, and then kind of let it, let it fly. And God didn't involve himself. But the God of the Bible isn't like that. The God of the Bible is very, very hands-on with his creation. And specifically with his covenant people, those who belong to him. He is involved in their lives. So as God is dwelling in the midst of Israel, he is with them. And as he is with them, he guides them. He doesn't leave them without a witness, without a word, a command, an instruction. He doesn't just send them to the promised land. He takes them to the promised land. Notice in verse 15, on the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered it. That was God's presence settling over the tabernacle. God made his dwelling among his people, with them in their midst. Notice also in verse 15 that it was a cloud by day and a fire by night. In other words, no matter when, 
whether it was in the daytime when they could see, in the nighttime when it was dark, didn't matter what time of day, didn't matter what the situation was, whenever God was with them to guide them. There is not a time when God is not there ready to show us the way to lead us. Notice in verse 16 that this is a continual pattern through all their travels. As they go throughout the entire time that they're traveling, this is how it works. The cloud settles, they settle. The cloud lifts, they move. It's a continual pattern. In other words, wherever they went, wherever we go, God faithfully leads His covenant people. I read for you from Isaiah 40 what is your memory verse for today. It's printed for you in your program, or you can turn to that passage again in Isaiah chapter 40. It's verse 11. And Isaiah 40, 11, speaking as, as we saw this picture of God in Isaiah 40, of, of a vast, powerful, magnificent, huge, I don't have big enough adjectives to use for the vastness of God, for the great power of God. And yet, this same God, who is big enough to be able, to be able to do anything, that nothing can stop him, nothing can get in his way. There's nothing that can come against his people that is bigger than him. But notice the description that we see in Isaiah 40, verse 11. And again, I would encourage you to memorize this this week. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. And he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Some of you have, have uh, portions of Handel's Messiah in your mind right now as we're, as we're thinking through this. That's the picture of God that we have. He is with His people to guide them without fail because He is great. He is not great like we often, often use it. Man, that was great pizza. No, He's great in that He's vast. He is huge. He is bigger than your imagination. But He is also good. He is morally good. He is the definition of moral goodness. All that we consider good or virtuous is a reflection, a derivative of His character, His nature. That's how we know what good and evil are. Before I go off on a whole other diatribe i'm going to come back to what we're doing here god is great and god is good and he is with his covenant people notice he's not with the nations as isaiah uh, gives us this picture in isaiah 40 he talks about the nations all of the nations of the world the great governments the powerful armies the the uh, majestic rulers they are nothing. They are less than nothing. They're like dust on a scale. It doesn't even register. That's how the nations of the world in all their greatness, so-called, are before the holy God. And yet this God gently leads those who belong to Him. 
His covenant people are never out of His care, never out of His hand. And even though the the strongest among us might grow tired and weary, He does not. And those who wait on Him will renew their strength. Those who follow Him will find that they do not wear out, no matter what He calls them to do or where He calls them to go. The Lord was with His people to guide them without fail. He leads His people because He's faithful. Notice this. Jesus Christ gave Himself to bring us into covenant with God. Jesus Christ gave Himself to bring us into covenant with God. As I mentioned, God's care for His covenant people is dramatically, dramatically different than his care for those who are outside his covenant. Now his providence, his common grace, makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. In other words, there is goodness in creation. Life, with all of its badness, with all of its darkness and brokenness, is good. It's beautiful and joyful. And the worst pagan, the devout Satanist, still gets to see the beautiful sunset over the lake. That's given to everyone. When the rain falls and waters the ground and brings fertility, God doesn't make that only fall on His covenant people and it kind of moves its way around the rest, right? Everybody else gets dry fields, but those Christian folks, they get blessing. That's one of the problems, by the way, with the... the, uh, I'm going to try to hold myself back. I'm going to not do a good job, but I'm going to try. That's one of the problems with the wicked and despicable so-called prosperity gospel. When we preach a message that says, if you believe God gives you all the good things that nobody else gets, God has a special blessing for you. So all your bills will get paid. That dent in your car will magically disappear. Don't you wish that would happen, right? Your laundry will not have permanent stains. The the weather will always be sunny, and yet somehow the ground will always be moist. You will always find favor with your bosses when you go to work. That's not how it works. You don't even need the Scripture to see the foolishness of that. It's one of the reasons that we see the, the gospel spread like wildfire in uh, developing nations, and then fall away just as dramatically when people find out, hey, you know what, these big promises, uh, that didn't really happen. God must not be real. God's common grace, His providence is for all. And there are promises that He will watch out for His people. We're seeing that in the book of Numbers. When we do life God's way, then the results come out God's way. But sometimes, sometimes, the result is not a crown now. It's a cross. And that cross precedes the crown that is sure and certain. And God always delivers. He just doesn't deliver on your schedule. He doesn't deliver according to the order that you placed. He is the sovereign God. And he gives good blessings, perfect blessings, according to his 
perfect wisdom. And sometimes he's going to call you to move when you think you should stay. And he's going to call you to stay when you think you should move. Trust him. Back to where we're supposed to be. Jesus Christ gave himself to bring us into covenant with God. The things that we're talking about here are not a matter of ritual. Not following God on the outside, but following God as a result of belonging to God and trusting in who He is. We've talked about this at length previously, so I won't belabor it, but all of the sacrifices of the law in Israel meant nothing if they weren't offered in faith. The blood of the Passover lamb painted over the doorpost in Egypt was because they believed God. God said, do it. Therefore, they did it. That's how it works. So no amount of religious ritual is going to get you right with God. What gets you right with God is God saying, you belong to me according to my covenant. And because you belong to me, like a child wanting to please their parents, they don't become a child by obeying, but because they are the child, they obey. It's a result of that loving relationship. Jesus Christ, seeing that we are not like that, that we are outside of the covenant, gave himself to bring us into covenant. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll look at a couple of New Testament passages to put this together. So if you're still in Numbers or Isaiah, go to the right most of the way through the scriptures. You're going to be about, oh, four fifths or so through the Bible. After Romans and the Corinthian letters and Galatians, you'll find Ephesians. Look at chapter 2. We'll look at a, a passage in Ephesians and Colossians and then in 1 Peter. And what we'll see in these is that apart from God's action in Christ, all of us are separated from him we do not belong to his covenant but because of christ we are brought in and we belong to him we are his paul writes starting with ephesians 2 1 as for you you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient all of us everybody say that with me all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following the desire, its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not a, from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. 
For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. There's a a little bit of a, a sarcasm in the way he's approaching this. His point is that the, the circumcision of the heart is what brings us into the covenant. He continues, Remember, in verse 12, that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ... You who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in His flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which He put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Jesus Christ gave Himself to bring us into covenant with God. Turn the page, just a a few pages. You go past the book of Philippians, which is kind of small, to the book of Colossians. In the first chapter of Colossians, we'll just read a shorter portion of it. Verses 21 to 23. Paul, writing to a different church, says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. We once were alienated, But because of Christ, His death and resurrection, we have been reconciled. We belong to Him. We've entered into covenant with God. Jesus Christ gave Himself to bring us into covenant with God. Turn farther to the right, almost to the back of the book, past Hebrews and James to 1 Peter. There are only a a few skinny books after Peter before you get to Revelation. Peter has two letters, the first of which is where we find ourselves in chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, we'll start with verse 4. 
As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus Christ gave himself to bring us into covenant with God. It's very, very simple. Every single person ever born was created for a relationship with God in which he is God and you are not in which you are in intimate connection to Him as a child and subject to Him as the Creator of all things. The purpose for every single human being ever created is to bring glory to God by enjoying Him intimately forever. But sin affects every single one of us. From the moment it entered the system through Adam, all of us inherit that sin. All of us. And so all of us fall short of God's standard and are separated from Him by this sin. We are dead, as Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. You're physically alive, but spiritually dead from the moment of your birth to now. Until you turn to Christ. Jesus Christ came so that you could be born again, not just naturally of the flesh, you're already physically alive, but so that you could be reborn spiritually and be now spiritually alive. When you are born in Christ, born of the Spirit, you are made part of God's covenant people, circumcised not by that done by human hands in the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart where the old flesh, the sinful nature, is cut away and removed and the the new person belongs to Him. In this reality, as God's covenant people, He is watching out for us as His special possession. God leads His people because He is faithful. The Lord was with His people to guide them without fail. And Jesus Christ gave Himself to bring us into covenant with God that we might be His covenant people and He might be with us to guide us without fail. Second point we need to see in Numbers chapter 9 is that God's faithful people follow Him because they trust His faithfulness. 
God's people follow him because they trust his faithfulness. As I mentioned uh, in the introduction, uh, the, uh, the birds at the farm like to follow mom because she gives them food. They, they want stuff. They trust that she's going to give them stuff. Unfortunately, they, we are as short-sighted as they are. We too often follow God to get stuff only. Now, don't get me wrong. Following God because you want things is not a bad reason to follow God. But it's short-sighted. That's like obeying mom and dad only because if you do, you know you're going to get ice cream for it. right? At some point, when the ice cream isn't an option, are you still going to obey? When mom and dad ask you to do something because it needs to be done, are you going to obey? That's also the reason that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the completion of wisdom. Wisdom begins when we recognize that God is God and I am not. He is great. I'm standing before the omnipotent being in the universe. And fear before a holy God is the right response. Turning to God because of a fear of hell is legitimate and right. If it weren't, Jesus wouldn't have warned us about hell so much. But it's the beginning. The fear of God becomes the love of God when we enter into that covenant relationship with Him. When we realize that, as they said once upon a time in Veggie Tales, that God is the biggest and He's on my side. Now that fear of God that got me started becomes the love of God in which I can rest when I feel safe because I know that He watches over His people. He leads them gently. God's people follow Him because they trust His faithfulness. Notice this. Knowing what the Lord had done in the past gave His people faith to trust what He would do now. Knowing what the Lord had done in the past gave His people faith to trust what He would do now. This is where we found ourselves previously looking at the Passover. God had them celebrate. He gave them these sacred celebrations. We see that in the Passover, other rituals of Israel. We see it in the ordinances that God gives His church in baptism and Holy Communion, or what we call the Remembrance Celebration. They have us look at what God has already done so that we might tell these deeds to others and to one another and that our faith might be strengthened as we remember and celebrate who He is and His relationship to us. The Lord's people trust God's faithfulness to lead them. This is a key reason God gave them the Passover. It's a key reason they would later recite the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, to remind them that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And that they might focus their attention on Him and love the Lord, our God, with all that is in us. Celebrating God's faithfulness is essential to living in God's faithfulness. Remembering what He has done with gratitude leads us into faith. I think of what He has done, how He has delivered me, how He has blessed me, and I am thankful. It's why we celebrate Thanksgiving. It's why we sing songs of praise to God every time we get together in church. These things 
focus our mind on the gratitude that is owed to God because of His goodness and the power of His greatness. Remembering what He has done with gratitude leads us into faith, but ungratefulness leads to forgetfulness. We'll see this later in the book of Numbers. Ungratefulness leads to forgetfulness. We often think of this as a what have you done for me lately kind of attitude. Yeah, that was great, but what about now? Lord, thanks for getting us out of Egypt, but man, we're sick of this manna. For crying out loud, can't we get some pizza or something? And he gives them all the meat they could want and more. And his sarcastic words, yes, God does use some sarcasm. He says, I'm going to give you so much meat, it's coming out your nostrils. I didn't even make that up. That's right there in the book. We'll get to that shortly. Ungratefulness causes God's people to forget His goodness. You know, this happens in marriages. We forget why we fell in love in the first place. We forget the covenant that we made when we spoke vows that said, I will cherish you. Doesn't matter what comes. Richer, poorer, sickness, health, better, worse. Doesn't matter. I will treasure, cherish you. I will love you honor you, serve you. And we get our focus off of our love. We get our focus on, what about me? Why don't you treat me like you did when we were dating? Why aren't you as affectionate as you used to be? What have you done for me lately? That ungratefulness leads to forgetfulness. And that forgetfulness causes rifts in relationships. When we're speaking of our failure to follow, ungratefulness leads to forgetfulness, which leads to fear, frustration, and falling away. We fear what's ahead of us. We don't know if God can really take care of us. Well, we know we've just forgotten because we failed to be grateful for what He's already done. We get frustrated because He hasn't done what we want Him to do. And we've forgotten all his benefits. And we've forgotten who he is. It's kind of the difference between the dog and the cat, right? You know, the the dog sees you feeding them and caring for them and, and, you know, brushing them and taking them to the vet even. And, and you know, that dogs hate that. Sorry, Stanton. Uh, You know, but they, they see you doing all this and they think, wow. They must be God. The cat sees all the same things and says, Wow, I must be God. We're a lot like cats, aren't we? Cats follow when they want to, when they feel like, Hey, it's time for me to eat. And they're very, very affectionate when they want to. Have you ever noticed that when the cat doesn't want to be petted, they disappear? They're not interested on your terms. I love our cats, unfortunately. I tried so hard not to, and they got to me. God's people, when we remember what He has done with gratitude, I deserve nothing, and He's given me everything. When I recognize that I'm a sinner, everything about me should already be in hell. But it's by His grace I've been saved. 
then that gratitude causes me stronger faith because I'm appreciating what God has done and I'm leaning into Him. But when I start to think, yeah, you know, I'm pretty good. Boy, God's blessed to have me. Now, we would never say that out loud, but our attitudes quickly fall that way, don't they? I've done well this week. God should bless me. Don't raise your hand. But how often has your heart thought that? We see the reverse of that as well. Man, I blew it. That's probably why the Cubs lost. It's not. The Cubs just do that. It's probably my fault that things are going wrong because I didn't earn the blessing. I didn't deserve God's hand right now. God blesses His children because He wants to bless His children. Don't be confused. If you're going to not follow, then you're going to not find the reward that comes from following. It's pretty natural. There are consequences to our choices. But you didn't deserve His blessing in the first place. And when you do your very best, the very best that you can do on your own, it's like dirty rags. It doesn't do anything to earn the, the favor of a holy God. How small would God have to be if my best could impress Him or get His attention at all? God's not small. We need to be grateful. When we are grateful we find that we will follow. Knowing what the Lord had done in the past gave His people faith to trust what He would do now. Notice this. The one who gave Himself for us is worth trusting. The one who gave Himself for us is worth trusting. <laughs> I wasn't going to have you turn here, but i got to have you turn here. Turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. All the way into the New Testament, not quite as far as we were when we were in the, those letters that we were reading earlier. If you get to Romans, you went a little bit too far. Back up past Acts, find John. John 10. <clears throat> Jesus draws this sharp contrast between the religious leaders of the day and himself as the Messiah. In so doing, he points out some important things about a good shepherd and about the sheep that belong to him. Starting with verse 1, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. I think we've often related this to salvation. But I think he's referring to the Pharisees themselves who are coming, entering the sheepfold, trying to influence the sheep, but they don't belong to the shepherd. They didn't come in the right way. Verse 2, The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they'll never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. So they see it as a threat. When sheep see that threat, they flee. 
when they recognize the shepherd's voice, because the shepherd is good to them, he is faithful to take care of them, they recognize that voice as a voice that brings comfort and pleasure and healing and protection and safety. Verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them, those who truly belong to the Lord by faith. Verse 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. He's the gate. He's also a good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Not my sheep. I'm not willing to go down for that. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Excuse me. The one who gave himself for us is worth trusting. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. They know his voice. They follow him because they trust his goodness to them. Turn back to the, I'm sorry, turn to the right some more to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, a passage that is hopefully familiar to you, but not so familiar that you don't hear it with fresh ears. The one who gave himself for us is worth trusting. Because Jesus laid his life down for us, he lays his life down for his sheep. We can trust that that kind of love is not going to come up short on other things. Right? If he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for us, then doesn't it just make sense that he's worthy of our trust? This is why the Israelites celebrated the Passover and so on, so that they could look at God's history. <clears throat> look at the evidence so that they could trust that evidence as evidence of things they could not yet see and what God would do in the future. Let's read from verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Somebody say amen. I want you to focus on verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's the point, isn't it? If he gave up Jesus for us, how can we fail to trust him? Is God going to come up short on things that cost him less than his son? 
If he did that for us, as Romans 5 says, if he did that for us while we were yet sinners, separated from God, his enemies, not his covenant people, outside of Israel, outside of the covenant, strangers to him, dead in our sins, owned by the devil, if he did that for us when that was our state, how in the world can we imagine that we won't be so much more blessed now that we are his children? That he won't save us more completely than we could possibly think? We go on. 33. If this is true, if God gave his son for us, and along with him, how can we imagine he won't graciously give us all things? If that's true, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Not the devil, not your conscience, not the law, not the accusing unbeliever who looks at you and talks about you. Let me repeat, not your conscience. That part of you that condemns you when our hearts condemn us. The Spirit reminds us of God's promise that you're saved by grace. Through faith, not good works. And the faith, that that ability to see and trust God, that comes from Him. Yes, you fail, you fall, but that's why Jesus came in the first place. Now get up. Don't listen to the deceiving, accusing voices. If God has justified us in Christ, who in the world could condemn us? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Think about that for just a moment. The Son of God mentioning your name to the Father. If your mind's not ready to explode right now, I don't think you've been listening. Jesus, while you were a wretched sinner, died so that you could be a saint. He had no sin. He took your sin so that if you will just trust that he is enough, you can become the righteousness of God in him. And now, because you trusted in him, you've received that. In other words, he gave you the gift. You opened the package and said, thank you. That's the biggest role you've got in this. Jesus at the right hand of the Father is saying, Father, this one's mine. Yeah, they blew it today, but they're mine. They are in covenant with you because of my blood. Whatever they did wrong, I did right. And when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. Not by any works of righteousness that we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Let it sink in and change everything about the way you think. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Verse 35. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons... Neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul didn't write this to be some inspirational thing that you put on a mug or a plaque. Paul was connecting with the reality of Christ's substitutionary death for those who will believe. And if you believe, he wants you to know what his heart knows. God will not, cannot forsake you. Follow him. Yeah, it ought to be inspirational. It also ought to be damning for those who are outside of the covenant. We press on. God leads his people because he is faithful. God's people follow him because they trust his faithfulness. Lastly, God's people choose to trust his word no matter what. God's people choose to trust his word no matter what. It is amazing to me, this particular passage in the latter half of Numbers chapter 9, in contrast with the rest of the book. This entire book, as we've talked about before, is a picture of God's faithfulness to his unfaithful people. God keeps on doing God things. He delivers them. He blesses them. That's how they wear his name when the priests pray the blessing over them. That God would bless them and keep them. He does. He gives them stuff and he preserves them and takes care of them. That he would make his face shine on them and be gracious to them. God's glory shines on them as he gives his grace to an undeserving people. That God would turn his face toward them This intimate picture of having peace between those who were sinful, dead, separated people and the covenant God who makes them right and makes them His. This is the overwhelming power of what happens. In this particular part of the chapter, all we see is Obedience, obedience, obedience. God says it, they do it. It's interesting that when they follow him, they follow him even through temptation. Notice this, when they did not understand, God's people trusted his command through Moses. When they did not understand, God's people trusted his command through Moses. This does not prove true through most of the book, through most of Israel's history, through most of my history and yours. But it is true here. How do we know that? Well, because they obeyed. When you look at it, they obeyed. Why did they obey? Because they trusted God's command. They trusted that when God said move, it's time to move. When God said stay, it's time to stay. But if you think for a moment that they always wanted to, then you're not really thinking about how your own life works. We see in verse 19, when the cloud stayed a long time, they obeyed and they did not set out. Even if they wanted to move. Sometimes we get restless and we want to go. We want, we, God, we've got to do something. 
God, move me. God, I'm tired of waiting for the blessing. When? When's it going to come? Lord, I'm tired of waiting for your judgment. How long, O Lord? How long will you let the wicked prosper? Lord, I'm tired of seeing our our society live as if they hate you and continue to to promote evil as good and good as evil. When are you going to fix this? When are you going to return? When it stayed a long time, they obeyed and did not set out even if they wanted to move. Verse 20, when it didn't stay a long time, they obeyed and moved out even if they wanted to stay. When it stayed for a short time, they're probably thinking, you know, we're kind of getting settled here. Two and a half million people traveling and camping, that takes a long time and a lot of effort just to break camp and and set up and just to tear it down and, and split again, right? So if God has them stay for a short time, they're probably thinking, if they're anything like me, that this is very frustrating and annoying. I don't want to be in this situation anymore. I want to see this movement. I want to see the change. When it didn't stay long, they obeyed and they moved out. Sometimes it only stayed for a very short period of time. Right? We saw only overnight in verse 21. Two million people. That's a lot of frustration. No matter how long or short, they followed the Lord's command. Verse 22. How often did we hear that repeated in the passage? They followed the Lord's command. When it set out, they set out. When it settled, they settled. This is how it works. Whether they wanted to, whether they felt it or not, they obeyed. Faith is demonstrated in obedience, not in feelings or emotions. Now, feelings and emotions come, but they come on the back end. They're not good guides. They're a response to stimuli. When we're not used to moving and we're forced to move, it doesn't feel good. When we're not used to sitting and we're forced to sit, some of you have been recovering from surgeries, you know what that's like. It doesn't feel good, right? But they obeyed. They followed the Lord. They waited on the Lord. The flesh was tired, tested, and tempted, but they obeyed. At the Lord's command, they obeyed. At the Lord's command, they obeyed through Moses. The Lord gave His command through Moses. And it's interesting in verse 23 that the text points out that they obeyed. They followed the command given through Moses. It wasn't just that they saw the cloud and the fire. It's specifically connected to the Word of God given through the servant of God. They saw the cloud, but it ends with His command through Moses. It takes faith to trust God's Word and the authorities God has put over us to guide us. In fact, that's our last point here. It takes faith to trust God's Word and the authorities God has put over us to guide us. Later on in the book, we'll see them grumbling against that authority. They'll grumble against Moses and Aaron, and God will bring judgment upon them. But it does take faith. Faith, Hebrews 11.1 says, is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. Not blindly, based on evidence. 2 Corinthians 5.7, Paul tells us that we walk by faith, not by sight. It's not by our own understanding. 
It's not by what we see and feel. We do what we know is right because God said it's right. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Folks, we must know the shepherd's voice and trust the shepherd's goodness. To do that, we must know the shepherd. To trust a representative of the shepherd, we must know the evidence of their connection to the shepherd. When a preacher preaches, it has nothing to do with the strength of the preacher. If you're going to start trusting people because they're good orators, you're going to find yourself on the path of destruction. Many wonderful speakers, preachers, if you will, preach a false gospel and have. Always have. That's the struggle Paul ran into with the church at Corinth. They wanted all these super preachers. And so they were kind of pushing Paul and the true gospel aside. Because Paul was weak. He didn't seem as dynamic. I want to encourage you, when you're not at real life and you're looking for a church to go to, don't go by feelings. Don't go just by, boy, that was a dynamic, inspirational message or the music was really boy it was strong and i felt good it's not a good measure of a church look for faithfulness look for a church with a people who are rooted in god's word and where god's word is displayed in the fruit of their lives look for pastors preachers teachers who don't just talk a good game but live what they preach. If you're looking for, for perfection, you will be disappointed because there ain't none, right? I promise. Watch me for a little while and you'll be very disappointed. No amens are needed right now. Because I'm flawed like everybody else. But if you're following a preacher who isn't following the Lord, you're going to end up in the wrong place. Trust, faith, is a choice to rely upon what we cannot currently see based on past evidence that the object of our faith is worthy. It would be foolish to wantonly trust anyone who claims to represent God without examining their words and actions against Scripture. And it would be foolish to accept whatever random thing claims to be Scripture without ever examining it closely against the whole of Scripture. There are many things that have cropped up over the years claiming to be a, a lost book of the Bible or a new revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't have time to go into it. Throw that garbage out. Examine every claim against the accepted, canonized Word of God. That's a whole other message. It would be foolish to do otherwise. You may not yet know as much Scripture as you want to or ought to, but if you know the shepherd, you begin to recognize his voice. You begin to notice when something just doesn't smell right. then you must dig into what you already know you can trust, God's Word. 
the Bible, to examine everything, to see if it is sound. Just like the Bereans in Acts 17, they were considered more noble than the rest because when Paul brought the message, they didn't just accept Paul's message. They studied the Scriptures diligently to check Paul's message, and then they accepted it because it matched the Scriptures. If you have to jump through a whole bunch of hoops to try to understand how the connection is being made to to the Bible from what the preacher is saying, it's probably false. A plain reading of Scripture becomes pretty clear as we put the things together. We consider the whole counsel of God, and it requires diligence and effort. When it doesn't smell right, you have to dig into what you already know you can trust. Dig into the Bible. Examine it all. Then when you recognize the authority of the master coming through the message of the immediate authority figure, respond in faith. Obey God's word communicated through his servant. Above all, follow the Lord even if you follow alone. Follow the Lord even if it is inconvenient. Follow the Lord even though it costs you everything you once held dear. And do not turn back. God is faithful to lead his people, but we must choose to follow him. He may call you to move faster than you want to. Follow him. He may call you to slow down or wait when you feel ready to run. Follow him. How will you know? Commit yourself to knowing him better every day, to recognizing his voice above all the noise by immersing yourself in God's Word and God's people. Every step of obedience in following Him by faith makes the next one that much easier to trust and obey. I'm reminded of the prayer of St. Richard of Chichester, which many of you may know from the musical Godspell. Day by day, day by day, Oh, dear Lord, three things I pray. To see Thee more clearly, love Thee more dearly, follow Thee more nearly, day by day. Jesus Christ gave His life to purchase Yours so that by trusting Him, You could be joined forever to God's covenant people. Trust Him, worship Him, follow Him. No turning back. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your inerrant, infallible word given by your spirit to human authors that they might write what you had for them to write that we might know you as you reveal yourself not as we would make you out to be lord help us to surrender ourselves to you to recognize that you are god and we are not And that you are faithful to lead your people. But we must choose to follow you. We must trust you and embrace the Son that we might be your people. Lord, in this moment, it is my prayer for those who are hearing these words and have not yet entered into this saving relationship with Jesus. They, They may be church folks who spent their lives believing, but they've not surrendered. They're still living life their way instead of your way. 
they're trusting you a little, but not with their whole heart. Still leaning on their own understanding. Still thinking that somehow their goodness, their works, their religiousness will set them right with you. Oh, Father, break us. Help each one hearing this to surrender, to tear down the walls, to let you do your saving work in them by your Holy Spirit. Quicken them, Lord. Bring them to life in Christ that they might choose to follow him. No turning back. We pray this in his name. Amen.